Would you remain standing in honor of God's word? We are going to the gospel of John. As you know, we will be in the gospel of John for the next four or five weeks or so. John chapter number four. And I want to begin in verse number 46. It says, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus came out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him, telling him, saying, your son lives. And then he inquired of them the hour when he had gotten better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. Today we are continuing in our series, He Amazes Me, and we are looking at the seven miracle signs recorded in the Gospel of John, and I want to minister to you from the subject, If He Did It For Them. How many of you know there's no need to get jealous? If we did it for them, He can do it for you. There's no need to hate, because if He did it for them, He could do it for you. How many of you know He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever? If He did it for them... He could do it for you. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister by your grace, by your power, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit to every single heart under the sound of my voice. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. you may be seated. World-acclaimed violinist Joshua Bell played a concert where he performed six of Bach's most stirring concertos. Uh, on a 300-year-old Stradivarius that was worth $3.5 million. It was a sold-out crowd. They paid $200 a ticket for nosebleed seats to hear him play. Two days later, he donned a baseball cap. He walked into a metro station in Washington, D.C. and started playing the very same things on the very same instrument, and only seven people stopped to hear him play. Only one recognized who he was. He got $32.17 in tips. And yet today, we have churches full of people who come in and come out and do not recognize our Savior, Jesus Christ, for who he is. We have relegated Jesus to an ordinary God that can do only normal things, answer a few tiny prayers, give us momentary relief from certain emotions, and perhaps give us a spiritual goosebump every now and again. But we have forgotten that in our midst on a regular basis is not a master violinist, it is the master of the universe. This is the one who spoke the worlds into existence. He's the one that commands the sun, moon, and the stars. He's the very one who made not just the world, but all the planets, the universe, and everything beyond the universe in the galaxies. We forget that Jesus is and was the water walker, the blind man healer, the leper cleansing man from Galilee, and we pass him by week after week and day after day, forgetting 
amazing that while he walked this earth, you could not hang around Jesus without seeing him doing a mind-blowing miracle that would make both the sinner and the saint dumbfounded and awestruck at his power. And John, the writer of our gospel, the gospel that we are looking into, testifies of him when he says, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And the word glory here means his splendor. It means his magnificence. It means his excellence, his preeminence, and his majesty. John is telling us firsthand that he got to witness Jesus as he calmed the storms with his words, as as he saw, as he spoke, and demons trembled at his voice, as sickness and disease could not stand in his presence, how he defied the laws of gravity and nature, reversed birth defects, and commanded the dead to come back to life again. And John is telling us, he's reminding us that this isn't the one, this isn't a God or a person that just played a concerto. This is the one who played the concerto of creation. But then when he bawled the baseball clap of our uh, cap of our flesh and blood and walked amongst this earth, many didn't even recognize who he was, even though he did all these miracle things. And so my assignment in this series is really to remind you to remind you of how mighty he is. We used to sing a, sing a song, angels bow before him, heaven and earth adore him. What a mighty God we serve. And as you live this life, do not forget how mighty he is. As you fight the good fight of faith, do not forget how mighty he is. As tribulation comes your way in trials and tests, do not forget how mighty he is. As Satan attacks you, do not forget how mighty he is. He is still a wonder worker. God. And when we come to this second miracle sign in the book of John, we see so many things, so many truths that can cause us to be amazed by him if we look out for them and practice them in our own lives. And the first one is this, to expect God's providence in our lives. You know, many people know who killed Abraham Lincoln when he was president April 4th, 1865, John Wilkes Booth. Obviously, everybody knows that. If you know anything about history, you know that. What most people don't know is that President Lincoln's son, Robert Todd Lincoln, was saved from death when he was pulled from a railroad tracks just a few short days earlier by Edward Edwin Booth, who was the older brother of John Wilkes Booth just, just days before his father's assassination. And just like the assassination of President Lincoln is proof that evil exists in the world, the fact that his son was saved by the brother of the murder of his father is proof that providence exists. Many people would think that certain circumstances in life are just coincidence, but I think it's providence working in our life. Just like the assignment of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln says there's evil, the saving of a son by somebody related. I mean, this is not stuff that you can just make up. This is proof that God is divinely orchestrating events in our lives. And providence can be defined as the supernatural synchronization of events that puts you in the right time 
time at the right place to connect with the right people. And scripture tells us over and over again how God is working providentially in the lives of his children. The ram caught in a thicket that Abraham offered in the stead of his son at the precise place where God told Abraham to go. Providence. Elijah showing up at the widow woman of Zarephath's house when she was down to her last bit of food. That's providence. Ravens bringing Elijah bread and, and meat in the morning and in the evening when there was a famine, when God told him to hang out at the brook called Cherith. That's providence. The coin in the fish's mouth that caused Peter to be able to pay his taxes and Jesus, that's providence. Jesus passing by the exact place where the woman with the issue of blood was after she had tried many things by many physicians and had not grown better but worse. That is providence. And the scripture promises us this providential hand of God in our lives. Psalm 37 verse number 23 says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Simply put, when we love and we serve the Lord, we are going nowhere by accident, but rather God is orchestrating uh, the events of our lives so that we can be in the right place at the right time, connecting with the right people. I remember, I think it was 11 years ago now, when God uh, put it on my heart to launch our New York City campus. And so I went down to New York City, kind of in obedience to the Lord, just walking around and saying, okay, God, where can we rent a place to have a church? And the first place I was led to wasn't the place that we landed at, was the TBN Studios um, uh, down around 30... Third, uh, I guess it's down further than that. It's about 22nd Street or something like that. It's all the way downtown New York City. And we went there and I thought, well, this is a great place, a Christian place. And I went in there. I said, can we rent your place to have church? And, and, and they didn't really want us there. They, they were like, well, the kids, you could, but you know, the kids can't come into the building and you'd have to find a separate spot for them. And so it really didn't work out. But little did I know that the person who managed that studio was somebody that I went to Bible college with. And so I thought I was going there to rent to church, and when she saw me, she said, hey, I got an idea. Would you host the worldwide Praise the Lord show? And this was a fulfillment of a prophecy that was spoken over my life 15 years earlier when somebody said to me, you're going to be on television around the world and you're not going to pay a dime for it. Well, I never knew how that would happen. Sure enough, I hosted the TBN Praise the Lord show for about seven years and that prophecy was fulfilled. What was happening? God was ordering my steps. I thought I was going just so that I can rent a place, but God was ordering those steps so I could be in the right time at the right uh, right place at the right time and connect with the right people so that his plan for my life could come to pass and God is doing the same thing for each and every one of us and we need to be on the lookout for those providential moments in our life and the word providence really shows us how amazing God is because it comes from a combination word pro, P-R-O which means before and vidence or video which means to see and so what providence means means is to see before it happens. And so God, because he sees things before they happen, God, because he lives outside of time, God, because he sees the end from the beginning, God visits our future. He's already been there. He backs up into our present and he begins to orchestrate the events in our life so that we can fulfill the destiny and the plan that he has for us if we listen. And this is the first amazing key in this miracle. Here we have a nobleman 
and an itinerant rabbi in the same place at the same time. Now you have to understand how unusual this is. You have to understand that in Bible times, noblemen, which were basically political powers, they were the right-hand people to the Roman government at the time, and we're going to see how providential this really was, they would never hang in circles with itinerant rabbis. Matter of fact, they would hang in, in completely different circles. But not only do we have these two people in the same place at the same time, but we find that the event that caused them to be in the same place at the same time was something that was sent to destroy a young boy's life. It wasn't God. It was sin. It was Satan. It was society. It was the world that we live in. But God took the very thing that was sent to destroy a life and a family and he caused it to orchestrate the events where a nobleman and an itinerant itinerant rabbi would be in the same place at the same time. That is the providential hand of God. And I love it so much because God's providential hand in our lives will even use the things that the enemy sends into our lives in order to set us up to be in the right place at the right time to be connected with the right people. I call it supernatural synchronization. When everything just comes together, well, what do I have to do in order to walk into providence? You just have to walk in obedient life. You just have to listen to the voice of God. You just have to be led by the Holy Spirit. You just have to do the things that God asks you to do. And when you do that, your steps are being ordered of the Lord. You are going nowhere on accident. Everywhere you go is a purpose, is for a reason. God is connecting you. So look out for these things. And when you're on the lookout for these things, God will amaze you in your life. Second thing we see in this text which I think helps us to be amazed by God is the perspective that we choose. Jesus grants this nobleman's request and tells him to go his way and that his son would be healed. The man travels back home and when he gets there his servants inform him that his child has recovered and he asked the question, when did this happen? And here's the answer. And they said yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. In life, we have a choice. We can focus on the problems or what God does despite the problems. We can focus on the evil or the good that comes out of the evil. We can see the problems as permanent or the problems as opportunities for providence. Had it not been for the fever, again, not sent by God, but sent by the enemy, this nobleman would have never met Jesus and he and his family would have never believed and gotten saved. And so they could have looked at how, oh, I can't believe this is what happened to my child. My child got a fever. My child almost died. They could choose to focus on that, or they could say that day, even though it looked like it was going to be the worst day of my life, turned out to be the best day of my life because I met Jesus that day. And so we have a choice. We can choose our perspective. Are you going to have a problem perspective or a promise perspective? Are you going to see problems in your life as, you know, unfairness, or are you going to see them as what I call opportunities? Opportunities for God to show himself strong through the problems that we encounter in life. We all have a choice. What is the perspective that we are going to choose? You remember Joseph? 
Joseph was thrown into slavery by his brothers, right? He finally gets a chance to pay his brothers back. He's now prime minister. He's got power. And what does he do? He famously says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. In other words, Joseph said, I'm not going to dwell on the evil. I'm not going to dwell on the problems. I'm going to dwell on what God brought out of the problems. We all have a choice. And here's the good thing about choosing your perspective. When you understand that providence is working for you, you don't really fret about what people do to you. Because what people do to you cannot stop the blessing that God has for you as long as you are walking in obedience to the Lord. And so sometimes when people do stuff to you, you can actually rejoice like the Bible says, rejoice in trials and tribulations, right? Sometimes when people do stuff to you, you can actually rejoice because you can say, well, you created a opportunity. You thought it was a problem, but it's an opportunity for God to show himself strong. We need to choose our perspective. I was reading about this pastor. He gave his life to, to ministering to gangbangers and, and, and drug lords and things like that. And one particular day when he was ministering, he was stabbed 37 times in a raid. 37 times. And he needed extensive surgeries. And so thank God he survived. And um, his, the perpetrator's family disowned him. The guy went to jail. And, and, and the pastor befriended him. Matter of fact, when it was time for him to read the victim's statement in court, he read what I would consider to be a victor's statement in court. And and he said he didn't read how he was mad at him. He read how he forgave him. He read a statement about how Jesus had forgiven him and how could he not turn around and forgive somebody who did evil to him. And that man gave his life to the Lord. Many people in the courtroom gave their life to the Lord. Many people who were part of the crime gave their life to the Lord as a result of that because he chose his perspective on the situation. He could have said, how unfair is this? Why why did life take a turn like this? After all, I've given my life to minister to these people. God should have protected me. God should have watched out for me. We could all go down those roads in life, but we have to choose our perspective. Instead of dwelling on all the negative things that have happened, we need to choose to say, okay, God, this is a opportunity. This is an opportunity for you to show yourself strong to me and through me. And that's what we see in this particular case here. Always remember every single time That you're in a situation, you're in a struggle, and you're tempted to focus on the evil instead of the good that God can bring out of it. Remember what the Bible says. It says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than the sparrows. The sparrows were the cheapest thing in the food market in ancient Israel. You could buy two of them for the smallest coin possible. And the Bible says that not one of them, God cares even for them. If God cares for them, 
If his eye is on the sparrow, if he's watching over the lilies of the field, how much more does he love us? Whatever problems come, whenever life comes and it's bitter and it's hard and it's not fair and all of those things, instead of allowing the enemy to take you down the road of why did this happen, suddenly begin to remember God loves me. And if God loves me, he's going to turn even this around for my good. We need to choose our perspective. And when we choose our perspective, we see God amaze us in our lives. Number three, third thing we see here, if we're going to see God amaze us, is we need to worship him humbly. In our text, there's this little three-letter word that unleashed God's amazing power in the life of this nobleman and his son, and it's the word sir. S-I-R. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. This man, by virtue of his political position, had access to the who's who of the Roman Empire. Jesus is technically, from a natural point of view, the subject of this Roman official. But yet, when this man comes to Jesus, he refers to him as sir. Now, this title is not one of merely respect like we use it. It's one of recognition that strikes at the heart of humility. Humility, listen to me carefully, is not simply a posture before men. It is a position before God. Let me say it again. It is not a posture before men. It is a position before God. In other words, humility, by biblical definition, is not just being self-deprecating. So you get around certain people who you, you, you give a compliment and they like slough off the compliment. We go, oh, they're so humble. You know? You get around, you get around people who they, they never, you know, they want to, they want to pass credit off and we, oh, they're so humble. But do you know those people can be some of the most arrogant people in all the world? Do you know why? Because the word sir, literally what it describes is the recognition of the lordship of Christ. It's used 721 times in the Bible and it's translated Lord. 11 times it's translated master and only six times is it translated sir. It literally means he to whom a person or a thing belongs. It describes the one who has the power of deciding or the master. It means the possessor and deposer of a thing. It describes the owner or the one who is in control of a person and it was a direct reference to a sovereign, a prince or a chief. Oftentimes it was used to describe the Roman emperor. And so you have a lot of people who are like, oh, that's very kind of you. But they don't know Jesus is master. They don't see him as Lord of their life. They think they're the ruler of their lives. You know what that is? That is the epitome of pride. That is the epitome of being arrogant to think that you and I just popped here all by ourselves, that we are the master of our own faith. According to the Bible, that is what arrogance really is. That is what pride really is. What was pride in Satan? It was him wanting to ascend above God. It was him wanting to be his own God. It was him not submitting himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And can I tell you this? There are a lot of people who are self-deprecating, even in the body of Christ, who are the most arrogant arrogant people in all the world because they think they get to call the shots of their life. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. Said, that's not how it works. What true humility is, is our submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's realizing that he's God, we're not. That he gets to call the shots. 
that he gets to give the instructions, that he gets to tell us what to do. And our job, this is what humility is, is to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ even when our flesh doesn't like it. So even when it's pouring outside, come on somebody, y'all watching at home right today. So even when it's pouring outside, and you're like, oh, this is a good day to sleep in because I just don't want to get up and go to church. You realize he is Lord of my life, and because he's Lord of my life, I get my lazy butt out of church, and I put out of bed, and I put my clothes on, and I get to the house of God anyway. That is what lordship is. But when I, but when I call the shots of my own life, I get to choose, even if that means going against what is the will of God. And here's what the Bible says. James chapter 4, verse number 6. This is why this nobleman, by the way, he was risking everything when he called Jesus, sir. Because as a man in his position, he knew that this title was reserved for the Roman Empire, emperor. And you know who the Roman emperor was, right? Herod. Herod Antipas. We're going to look at that in just a minute. He was one of the three sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a maniac. Herod the Great was the one who was alive at the birth of Jesus. Herod Antipas is the one who is alive at this time and who is ruling now. And if any of them heard you refer to somebody else as a sovereign, they'd kill you. And here is this man. He's part of the inner circle. But yet he calls Jesus, sir, and he puts everything on the line in order to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Can I give you just a tip for life? Don't wait till you have to submit to Jesus in order to submit to Jesus. See, this man was all about the sir Jesus because nobody could do anything for his child. But I want you to tell true lordship is when you don't have to, when you don't need God, but you still recognize him as the Lord of your life. Life is going good for you, and you still say sir. You still say Lord. And look at what happens. God resists the proud. Those that that don't submit to the Lord, not those who, you know, take compliments. Not those who are, who are, who are not self-deprecating. That's not what this means. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. To those that submit to His Lordship. Therefore, submit to God. What does submit mean? It means to do what God said even when you don't want to. That's what submit means. This world knows nothing about submission. Everybody's got their own feelings, and their own feelings are what matters the most, and their, their own truth is what matters the most, and, and, and I don't have to, no, no, submission means to do it even when you don't feel like it, therefore submit to God. By the way, if you are living a Christian life where you never, ever feel the opposite of what God wants you to do, you're not really living a Christian life. Because there will be times where God will, God will say, no, 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 you can't do that. No, 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 you shouldn't be doing that. And you'll have to submit. If you're never finding yourself submitting to something that your flesh doesn't want to do, you're really not living the kind of life God wants you to. He says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Knowing doing this, notice doing this, causes the favor of God in your life. And so here's what God's word to you today is. Whatever he says, do it. Remember what Mary said in the first miracle? She looked at the service and said, whatever he says, do it. Whatever he says, do it. Whatever he says, do it. I mean, if we just practice that for the next year, one little statement, Pastor, what do I need to do in order to be a good Christian? Whatever he says, do it. 
Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, think about that. It would take what would Jesus do to a totally new level. Whatever he says, do it when my flesh doesn't want it. Yes, sir. When I don't feel like doing it. Yes, sir. When he asks me to do something that I really hate. Yes, sir. Why? Stop looking like it's, you know, God is trying to pick on you and just realize God is trying to set you up for him to amaze you. Obey everything. And when you obey God. When you submit to God, you get to know him in a way that you would never know him before. You get to know him in a way that I call, oh, oh, you're, you're a God like that. Oh, you're a God like that. You can speak just a word and, and my child can be healed. Oh, oh, you're a God like that. You can say peace be still to the storm and it obeys you. Oh, you're a God like that. You can make a way where there seems to be no way. Oh, you're a God like that. You can fix my marriage. Oh, you're a God like that. You can supply all my needs according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. The only way you get to know God like that is called humility. And that doesn't mean, oh, I'm really not that good. Imagine, imagine how much of a lie it is. If somebody comes to me and says, man, you're a great preacher. And I'm like, oh, I'm not that good. I just mess with y'all brain there because y'all like, that's arrogant. See, you still don't know what arrogance is just yet. You still don't understand, right? David looked in the mirror one day and he said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Didn't he do that? He looked in the mirror right there. He wasn't talking about God. He's talking about himself. He said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Look at the works of your hands, God. He said, I should, I should have a license to go out looking this good. See, we, we still are hung up on whether we take a compliment or not. Instead of understanding what true humility is, submitting to God. And when you do that, you begin to see God amaze you in ways that will blow your mind. Third thing we see here is if God is going to amaze you, you need to step out expectantly. I want you to notice the verse tells us that this noble man was from Capernaum and Jesus was in Cana of Galilee and the man went to Jesus. Now you have to understand this was 27 miles uphill. 27 miles uphill. In other words, this guy put in some sweat equity to be amazed by Jesus. And the question for some is are you willing to walk to Cana to be amazed by Jesus. Can I just tell you something? If you ain't willing to get up out of your bed when it's raining out, you ain't willing to walk to Cana to be amazed by Jesus. Can we just be real for a minute? You know, all we need to understand that that the, the little things of life. Watch, 11 o'clock service for all the people who are watching online will be packed now. Like, Got to get up. See, we have to understand the little things in life matter. He was willing to put in some sweat equity. 27 miles uphill. Are you willing to walk to Cana? Are you willing to put in some sweat equity? Said another way, are you willing to do what is uncomfortable in order to experience what is impossible? This is how miracles are unleashed in our life. We want miracles on our terms. We want miracles our way. We, we think I've preached this before. We think God is Burger King. God, you know, in that first miracle, by the way, you notice what Mary never did at the wedding of Cana? She never told Jesus how to do the miracle. She just told him what the problem was. 
See, but we think, we think God is Burger King. Okay, God, I need you to do that by this time, and I need you to do it this way, and I need you to send this much, and I need you to... See, we have to understand that we have to be willing to do what is uncomfortable in order for God to do the impossible in our life. Are you willing to step out in faith? Faith is not just a belief. Faith is an action that trusts that God will. It's an action that evidences that you believe that God will. And can I tell you that our actions disqualify our faith so many times in our life. Because we say we believe one thing, but by virtue of what we do, we don't really believe what we say. Hello? I'm preaching so good this morning, y'all just staring. I love when y'all stare. Because either you're like, man, he, he getting me, or you're like, I ain't saying nothing because if I say something, it's going to look like he getting me. Listen to what James says. James chapter 2, verse 18 says, but someone will say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Even the demons believe. Even the demons believe that Jesus is Lord. Even the demons believe that Jesus is Lord. This is just a little, 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 little wrinkle to our kind of salvation. Even the ge- demons believe that Jesus is Lord. What do you do? What is your, your action is evidence of what you really believe. But do you want to know a foolish man that faith without works is dead? The proof of what you believe is what you do. The proof of what you, I want to say one more time. The proof of what you believe is what you do. If you're going to see God amaze you, fully expect to have to step out expectantly and sow a seed of action that demonstrates your trust in God. Before God answered Elijah with fire from heaven, he had to wet the altar. Imagine, you believe God is the God of, that can answer from heaven by fire. And to prove it, you wet the wood. Because wet wood don't burn. But how many of you know God is not limited by natural law? So the proof of what I believe is the action that I take. Before God multiplied the widow woman's last meal, she had to give her very last to Elijah. Before God healed the lame man carried by his four friends, they had to rip open the roof. Before God parted the Red Sea, Israel had to march toward it, and Moses had to stretch forth his rod. Before God fed the 5,000, the little boy had to give him his lunch. Before Bartimaeus got healed, he had to yell out in the middle of a crowd. Before the 10 lepers were cleansed, they had to go show them to the priest after the order of Moses before the man born blind was healed he had to go wash the mud off of his eyes in the pool of Siloam before God delivered Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego from the fiery furnace they refused to bow before God raised Lazarus from the dead Mary broke her alabaster box you gotta step out you, you, you can't just not have actions that correspond to your belief and see God amaze you. Some people are praying the right prayers, but no sooner do they pray the right prayers, they fail to take the right action. Can I tell you, every time you pray a prayer, you will almost get an, you almost always will you get an instruction. And the, and the prayer being answered or not answered is linked to the instruction that you follow. 
And it's not because you need to do something in order for God to be able to do something. That's the way God has made it. That's the way God has uh, wired the universe. It's called sowing and reaping. It's called God responds to faith. Anybody that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. The next thing you need to do or practice in order to see God amaze you is to remember his faithfulness. Not only are you willing to walk to Cana, but here's the, bit, the, the bigger question. Are you willing to return to Cana? Notice what John chapter 4 verse 1 says. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, came again, came again, came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. Cana was the place of Jesus' first miracle. The miracle where he manipulated the water molecules. It's where he made something out of nothing. It's where he showed us that he was the master of matter. Cana was his coming out party. Cana was the place where he made 180, you remember that? 180 gallons of wine at the end of the wedding. I thought about this. I thought they must have had some left over unless they had total lushes there. Right? Because it was 180 gallons at the end of the wedding. And I believe it was at the end, so they have some to remember. I believe every now and again that newly married couple popped open a bottle of, of that wine that Jesus made. And the taste, the aftertaste was pure faith. Here's what I'm telling you. Are you willing to return to the places where God has already done something in your life? Are you willing to go back either physically or mentally to the spaces where God has showed up so that you will remember his faithfulness and understand just like he did it before, he can do it again. Did David ever return to the valley of Elah? Where he defeated Goliath? We don't know, but here's what we, I think he did, by the way. We do know that he spoke to the priest, Abiathar, and he said, when he was on the run from Saul, he said, can I have the sword of, 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 of Goliath? Remember, the sword of Goliath is what he used to cut the head off Goliath? And when he got the sword, you know what he said? He said, there's none like it in all the earth. Do you ever think Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel where he called down fire from heaven? I do. Do you ever think that Moses went over by the Red Sea and just looked because he remembered the day God parted the waters? I think Peter rode out to the middle of the Sea of Galilee where he got out of the boat and actually walked on water. Sometimes you've got to return to your Cana. Where has God done something for you in the past? Where has he delivered you? Where has he been good to you? Where has he been kind to you? Where has he done a miracle in your life? Return to those places often. Because how many of you know, the enemy is always trying to get you to return to your old places. He's always trying to get you to return to the muck and the mire that Jesus delivered you from. He's always trying to get you to return to your old thought patterns, to your old habits. He's always trying to pull you back. And here's the things that I've learned. You're going to visit your past some way, somehow. You might as well visit the past where God has been good to you and get some faith on the inside of you and remember that he's the same God today as he was back then. The next thing I want you to see, and I'm going to bring this to a close, is you need to rest in who he is. Rest in who he is. And by the way, I read about this guy, Nick Volducek. You ever hear about him? He was born with, with no arms, no legs. He wrote a book called No Arms, No Legs, No Problem. I love that. You know what he does? He has a pair of sneakers that he puts in his closet. And every day when he gets stressed, he looks at the pair of sneakers. You know why? He said, because I believe in miracles. See, you need to trigger yourself. 
The devil is always trying to trigger you, isn't he? But you need to trigger yourself. You need to train your trust in the Lord by going back to those places and those spaces where God has been good to you. But number, the next, then I don't know what number it is. I think it might be six. The next thing I want you to see is to rest in who he is. Let me bring this to a close. In 1825, Samuel Morse was a painter. He painted portraits. That was his livelihood. He was painting a portrait in Washington, D.C. And uh, while he was painting, he got a one-word message from his father that was delivered to him on horseback. Your wife is about to die. He dropped his painting, and he came back to New Haven, Connecticut. And by the time he got there, his wife had already passed away. And he was brokenhearted. And so from that point forward, he hung up his painting, and he decided that he was going to devote his wife, his, his life, to a, a way of getting messages to people quickly. And so he developed... Morse code. And the first message that was ever ticked out in Morse code was from Numbers 23, 23. What God has wrought. One version says, oh, what God has done. Information once traveled by ships and then trains and horses and Morse code and then the transcontinental phone system and now Wi-Fi. Now we can get information like this. We can Google anything we need. Anybody, anybody can be smart now. Let me say it again. Anybody can be smart. If you're stupid, there's only one reason. You're lazy. Hello? Because you can Google anything right now. You can find that anything on the side. You want to be smart? You want to have some, some, some illustrations for a sermon? Just Google some stuff. Where do you think I get these stories from? It's not that I have this wealth of knowledge on the inside of me. I just Google stuff when I need it. I need a story about this. And bam, there it goes. That's a good story right there. Morse code. And here, information was traveling at all different speeds until we got Wi-Fi. But how many of you know, nobody can do you like Jesus. The first miracle where he turned water into wine, he showed us that he was the master over the molecules of matter that make up this world. But in this miracle, Jesus shows us that he's the master of time and space. He says from 27 miles away, go your way, your son is healed. And the words that he spoke, the sound waves that came out of his mouth traveled instantaneously 27 miles to a place that he wasn't even physically present, although he was because he's omnipresent, he's God, and healed that boy and raised him up from a a deathbed. He's the master of time. And space. It wasn't the first time he defied time and space. He made the sun stand still for Joshua, didn't he? He gave Hezekiah 15 more years. God can give you 15 more years. Maybe they said you you were going to die. God can give you 15 more years. He did it for Hezekiah. God is the master of time and space. And I want you to, I want you to rest in who he is. Rest in the fact that with him there is no distance in prayer. That there is no time that is too late. There is no ocean. God's miracle working power can't span. There is no mountain too high. There is no valley too low. There is no circumstance too difficult. There is no situation too impossible. He is the God of time and space. That's why in Joel chapter 2 verse 25 he says I will restore to you the years that the locust and the canker worm have eaten why because God can give you back everything that time and space and life has stolen from you you need to rest in who he is my last point realize 
that if he did it for him, he can do it for you. Say, Pastor, what do you mean? Who was this man that he did this miracle for? The Bible says he was a, he was a nobleman. This literally means he was a high-ranking official of the Roman Empire. And scholars believe that he was one of the right-hand people to Herod Antipas. Who is Herod Antipas? Herod Antipas, as I said before, was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was crazy. Remember, he's the, when Jesus was first born, he's the one that put out the edict to kill all the babies two years old and under because he thought Jesus was coming for his throne. And so this was the bloodline of that man. And his children were no less crazy because how many of you know the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? I'm going to say it again. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He was sneaky. He was a liar. He was deceiving. He was dishonest. He was infected. He was, he was a sick individual. Jesus himself referred to him as a fox. He divorced his first wife so that he could marry his half-brother's wife and also his niece of another half-brother whose name was Herodias. You remember Herodias? She's the one who said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. That's who this guy married. He broke the bro code, man. You don't marry somebody that your half-brother is with. You don't even date somebody that your friend is with. We need to get back to some of the old school teaching, you know. Not only some of the old school teaching like what's a man, what's a woman, that there are only two gen. Not only some of that old school teaching, but we need to get some, just a basic bro code, man. You don't do that to a friend. But he was because he was crazy. And this was the guy whose servant was this nobleman. And, and that's why, by the way, this guy, by the way, he couldn't wait to see Jesus if you read about the crucifixion. He couldn't wait to see Jesus, and he was wanting Jesus to, on command, perform a miracle for him. You might remember that as you read through the Gospels. And uh, Jesus wouldn't perform a miracle on cue for him. And this is why Jesus said, remember when the nobleman came and asked? He said, can you come and heal my son? Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. This was insight into Jesus' foresight. Jesus knew where he was going. Jesus knew he would stand before Herod Antipas one day. And Herod Antipas would ask him to perform a miracle on command. By the way, never pursue a miracle. Pursue Jesus and you will find yourself in the middle of miracles. You don't need to pursue a miracle. If you just start walking with Jesus, if you just start submitting to Jesus, you will see miracles take place in your life in record number that you will be astounded. And so this is Herod Antipas's servant, his nobleman. This is the guy who's on the wrong team. This is the guy who's on the wicked team. This is the guy on the team of those who are going to plot against Jesus. And for this guy, Jesus does a miracle. For this guy who wasn't part of the kingdom, this guy who wasn't part of the righteous, every time I see God do something nice for the unrighteous, I get excited. Because if he'll do that for the unrighteous, how much more will he do that for those of us who have been made righteous? If he did this miracle before the cross, how much more? Because he paid for it on the cross. I get excited whenever I see God's goodness show up in other people's lives. It doesn't get me jealous because I remember if he did it for 
them, he can do it for me. No need for me to be jealous. If he did it for them, he can do it for me. No need for me to hate. If he did it for them, he can do it for me. No need for me to worry about it. If he did it for him, he can do it for me. How many of you know God is a God who can do it again and again and again and again? He can do it again. Come on, somebody say it. He can do it again. He can do it again. Speak to your spirit. He can do it again. problem for God to do a miracle but sometimes the backdrop for God to do a miracle is a problem and and I make a distinction because God could just extra bless you when everything is going right everything could just be going right in your life and suddenly God brings something across your path in life and boom your life opens up you didn't necessarily have a problem but God blessed you anyway And I love that about God. You don't need a problem in order to see a miracle. But one thing I do know is when you have a problem, it is the backdrop for a miracle. Amen. I want to pray for you right now. I want to pray for anybody that's got a problem where only a miracle will do. If that's you, just put your hands up to heaven right now. You have a problem, only a miracle will do. You have a problem, only a miracle will do. Hallelujah. Here's what I feel the Lord saying to me right now. Do not forget what I told you a minute ago. Whenever there is a prayer, there is an instruction. How uncomfortable are you willing to get in order to sow the seed to release the miracle working power in God's life, in your life. Some of you have your hands up right now. God's word to you is simply this. Do whatever I say and you'll see my miracle working power. Father, in the name of Jesus right now, you see these hands. There is no problem too big for you. There is no circumstance that is too difficult for you. You're God. Father, you're the master of molecules. You're the master of time and space today, Lord. Right now, I pray that your miracle-working power will be released in the lives of every single one of these people. Let their lives become testimonies to your glory. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, amen and amen. You know, I never like to close the service 
without giving people the opportunity to give their life to Jesus. I don't think there's ever been a service in the history since we've had cameras of somebody not getting saved, whether it's here or on camera somewhere. And that's what I love about preaching the gospel is people giving their lives to Jesus. Maybe you're here today in this place and you don't know if you're right with Jesus. Maybe you're watching somewhere on the other side of this camera and you don't know if your life is right with Jesus. If you're here today and you need Jesus to forgive you of your sin and to be made right with him with no one looking around, if that's you, can say, Pastor, I want to surrender my life to Jesus today. Just put your hands up to heaven right now. I want to pray for you. We won't embarrass you, I promise. Anybody like that in this place today on this rainy Sunday? Amen. All the way in the back. That's awesome. Maybe you're at home, maybe you're at one of our other locations, and if God is speaking to you, put your hands up to him. It's a sign of surrender. Let's all pray this prayer out loud right now, especially those that are giving their life to Jesus right now. Heavenly Father, today I give you my life. I repent of my sins. I ask you to forgive me. I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I will never be the same in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen and amen. God bless you.